glued. Okay. Well, I'm going to say good afternoon. I almost said good morning. It is so good to be with you. Um, I got to visit with you guys probably four years ago now um, in your offices in, in Melbourne. So it's it's cool to be back so many years later. Um, yeah, when when Roy and Jinha asked me, this is a church I've loved coming to. It's always so friendly and welcoming and warm. So it's it's really good to be with you. This morning, um, I want to talk about underdogs, and we were just having a great conversation about F1s, but in sports, especially as Australians, we love the underdog story. Whenever we go to the Olympics, Australia is always the underdog, maybe not in the swimming, but everywhere else. If we do have any sort of success, it is amazing because we're underdogs. And so I love sport. And so if you don't love sport, I'm sorry, but for a few moments, I'm going to talk about some sporting achievements. This is the 1989 touring party of the Australian cricket team that went to England to play the Ashes. If you don't know what the Ashes is, it's a, a cricket tournament, a cricket series with England, and it's the pinnacle of, of world cricket. The Ashes is the biggest series that is. Ashes party, uh, Ashes tour in England very soon. But this party have been training, they're professional cricketers, this is their life, cricket is everything they do, and when they get off the plane and disembark in England, this is what they're uh, they're met with. All the English press, and even some of the Australian press, were saying that this was possibly the worst team to ever tour England. Put yourself in their shoes. This is your life. Everything you do... Up until this point, to get to the pinnacle, the professional level of sport, has to revolve around this sport. And you get there and you're told you're probably the worst that's ever come. Well, this team, led by Alan Border, he's the gentleman sitting next to the man in the front row with the tie. On the right is Alan Border. He was the captain. And under um, Alan Border, he had led Australia through possibly the darkest period of Australian cricket. We'd lost everything for years. We were the laughing stock of the world. Nobody thought we were any good. And and Alan Border got the, the nickname Captain Grumpy because when he was on the field, he never smiled because when they were losing and not doing very well, some sports people, you know, they, they put on a brave face, they still smile. Not Alan Border. He was grumpy, he was angry, he got annoyed at his team. But... You come into 89, the worst team to ever play, and really Australia hadn't done anything good for a decade, maybe 15 years. And in this test match series, led by, on the top row, third from the left, Mark Taylor, the new opening batsman, he hadn't done very much, um, and he dominated the English team. And you get to the end of this Ashes, the worst team to ever play from Australia, and they destroyed England. It wasn't even close. And it led, it set up a period of Australian cricket where we won every Ashes series from 1989 all the way through to 2005. A 15-year period where we were no longer the laughingstock, but we were the dominant force. And it was led, it was set up by possibly the worst team 
to ever tour England. Underdogs. One more. The player on the left is LeBron James. For the last, oh, since 2003-ish, he's been the greatest basketball player on planet Earth. The guy on the right is, is a guy called Steph Curry, and he's been one of the best basketball players. This picture was taken in 2016, and LeBron James, even though he was the best, was the underdog. During the 2015-2016 NBA season, Steph Curry had led his team, the Golden State Warriors, to the best regular season in history. In the 1980s, a guy named Michael Jordan led the Chicago Bulls to a record of 72 wins and 10 losses. That was the best, and it had stood for, for, for almost 30 years. Steph Curry and the Golden State Warriors went 73 wins and 9 losses. They had cemented themselves as one of, if not the best, one of the best teams ever. And all they had to do to really cement that, that um, position as the best team ever to play was to win the championship. So in the NBA playoffs, when you get to the finals, you have to, there's a series, you've got to win four games. It's a best of seven. So first to four, and then, and then you've won. And when this picture is taken... Steph Curry has just won game four and has led the Golden State Warriors to a 3-1 lead in the finals. So Golden State had won three games. They needed one more to win the championship. This year, the NBA has turned 75. So at this point, about 70 years of NBA history, no team had ever come back from a 3-1 deficit in the finals. And LeBron James went on to do the impossible and won the next three games straight and beat the Golden State Warriors, the best team that had ever played, and won the championship from 3-1 down. Hadn't been done before. He was the underdog and he came back. We love the story of an underdog when it comes to, to anything, but especially sports. Today we're going to look at a story, a story that... Is one of, and, and, and when we look at the Bible, over and over and over again, we see stories of underdogs. God chooses people who shouldn't be able to do what they, what they achieve, but they do. So we're going to look at, at the story of Hannah. And so we'll read through it, and then we'll come back through and we'll, we'll talk about it. This is, if you want to follow along, 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, or we're going to go all the way through to 18. There was a man from Ramathaim Zophim, the hill country of Ephraim. His name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, son of an Ephraimite. He had two wives, the first named Hannah and the second Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah was childless. This man would go up from his town every year to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of Armies at Shiloh, where Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were the Lord's priests. Whenever Elkanah offered a sacrifice, he always gave portions of the meat to his wife, Penaniah, and to each of his, her sons and daughters. But he gave a double portion to Hannah, for he loved her even though the Lord had kept her from conceiving. Her rival would taunt her severely just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. Year after year, when she went up to the Lord's house, her rival taunted her in this way. 
Hannah would weep and would not eat. Hannah, why are you crying? Her husband Elkanah would ask. Why don't you eat? Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept with many tears. Making a vow, she pleaded, Lord of armies, if you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. While she continued praying in the Lord's presence, Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be hear, heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, Go in peace and may the Lord, may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favour with you, she replied. Then went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. This, this story is important. Because when we look at the, the story arc of the story of the nation of Israel, what Samuel does for them is so, so important. And this is where it starts. So if we go back to the first couple of verses, there's a few things we learn here. The first thing that it talks about is it gives the... Who, who this is about. So we find out that Elkanah is the husband and there's two wives, Hannah and Penaniah. There's two reasons why they would have more than one wife. The first was if you were rich enough. If you had the money, well then you would just, because that's what you did, you just have one, two, three, four, however many wives you could afford. If you were poor, you wouldn't have more than one wife because you couldn't afford it. The second reason and this would be the reason we assume for this, is if your first wife couldn't have kids. Because the culture of the day, having a son to carry on the family name was the single most important thing that a woman could do, was to provide a son. And so Hannah... Is the, is the wife that Elkanah's had the romance with, the love story with, the wife that he truly loves. But she can't have kids. Penaniah, she's just the wife that, of necessity because he needs to have kids, he needs to have a son. And so you can already start to see a little bit, a little bit of a... a idea of through the curtain of what this family would be like. There's going to be this weird tension between all three of these, these people because Hannah doesn't, or definitely doesn't like Penaniah. Penaniah doesn't really like Hannah because one knows that they're the one that has truly loved and the other one is, is not. And so there's that already that rivalry about that. And so Elkanah, has, it's, it's this messy situation. We learn then that 
every year he would take his family and go to sacrifice at Shiloh. We know that where the, the, the house, the base of Elkanah and his family was and Shiloh is about 19 kilometres apart. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But there's these two names that don't come up again in this story till in chapter 2. And it's Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons. And it just drops it there at the beginning. And it's really important. So I'm just going to read you a quick passage from chapter 2. And if you want to come with me, chapter 2, verse 12. When we read the names Hophni and Phinehas, this is what you should be thinking. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Eli's sons were wicked men. They did not respect the Lord or the priest's share of the sacrifices from the people. When anyone offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged meat fork while the meat was boiling and plunge it into the container, kettle, cauldron or cooking pot. The priest would claim for himself whatever the meat fork brought up. This is the way they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the one who was sacrificing, give the priests some meat to roast because he won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If that person said to him, the fat must be burned first, then you can take whatever you want for yourself, the servant would reply, no, I insist that you hand it over right now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. It's a bit confusing here. But God has given the Israelites specific rules and ways that they are to sacrifice the meat. For the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, they were priests. That was all that they did. Their only way to survive was by donations and they were allowed to take certain portions of the sacrifices to eat because they couldn't go out during the day and do anything else to earn money. So the way they survived was getting food from the sacrifices. But they were violating the very uh, terms that God had given them. There was particularly, you know, the fat had to be burned off first and then they could take some. This had to be done to it and then they could take some. And they were going before the sacrifice had even been um, presented to God and was ripping it off these people and telling them, if you don't, we'll take it by force. So these are the two priests who are meant to be the, the, the people who um, represent God to the people. And through the very thing, the sacrifices, that was representing that, that sacrifice that God was going to make for us down the track, they were going in and really distorting this image. They were evil and wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And they're mentioned there and then not again for the rest of our story. And, and it's important and we'll, we'll, we'll understand a little bit more as we go. But sometimes we put our faith in the people who run our church, the people who re- are meant to represent God to us. And sometimes they fail. And Hophni and Phinehas were failing the people of Israel. And yet every year, Elkanah would take his family to give sacrifices, even though he knew he was probably going to be mistreated by the priests. We'll come back to it, but it's important just to understand why those two names are put there. It takes It's 19 kilometres to get to Shiloh. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Hannah for a 
three, four, five kilometers an hour. If you're really pushing it out, maybe six or seven. So if, if you've got a big convoy and you've got a bunch of kids, probably some animals to take to sacrifice, probably a donkey or a camel to, to carry it all, and you're taking a 19-kilometer journey, this is probably a three- or four-day journey at, at minimum. Now I want you to put yourself in the middle of probably a dry and arid area, and it's like five o'clock at night, the sun's starting to come down, but it's still hot, and you're hungry and thirsty, and you've been walking all day, and your whole body is aching, and you just want to stop. You just want to just stop, put your head down, eat something, have something to drink. You're at that stage where you're ready to snap. You're just done. And Penaniah comes up to Hannah and says, you know, he doesn't really love you because you can't have kids. Or maybe one of the kids falls over and Hannah leans down to help pick him up and Penaniah comes over and goes, don't you dare touch that child. You're not worthy to have kids. You're not worthy to touch my kids. And it's always in between. Elkanah is always just far enough away so that he can't hear these taunts and these jabs. And it's late in the day and you just snap. You've just had enough. And this has been happening year after year after year. You're going to be in a pretty dark place. Elkanah... You know, you get to the, the, the temple and Elkanah is putting out, giving out the, the portions of meat to go and sacrifice. And it tells us that he gives portion to Penaniah and to each of her sons and daughters, but gave a double portion to Hannah. And he does this because he's treating her as if she's got a child. She's, he's saying to her, I love you and you haven't given me a child, but I'll give you a double portion as if you have. And so now Penn and I gets annoyed at that. He, he only gives me enough for me and my kids. Why does she get double? And so that just makes the taunting worse and worse. And it drives Hannah to the point where she is weeping and not able to eat. She's distraught, destroyed. Elkanah comes over and goes, why, why are you crying? Come on, you know why she's crying. Why won't you eat? Again, you know the answer to that. Why are you troubled? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Isn't this like the most bloke thing possible? Instead of helping and fixing the, the issue and just, you know, sitting and listening, haha, <laughs> I've got the solution. I'm better than ten sons. Stop crying. Classic. And it's just a, a moment where we should just look at it and go, maybe sometimes we should just stop and listen. Maybe we should stop and listen. So there's this one year, and it's the same as every other year. She's walked a long way. She's been taunted and made fun of, and she's at breaking point. She's snapped. She's not eating. She's crying. And she goes up 
and goes to the temple at Shiloh. And Eli is sitting, the head priest is sitting at the doorpost. And Hannah is in the courtyard and she is pouring out her heart to God. She is praying this incredible prayer. Lord of armies, if you will take... And imagine someone saying this with tears running down their face. If you will take notice of your servant's affliction, if you will remember me and not forget me, and if you give me a son, I will give him to the Lord all of his days and his hair will never be cut. Think of the thing that you want most in life. Not material, not like that deepest goal. The thing that makes you tick, that career goal, whatever it might be, that goal that is so deep within you that it's the what you want the most and you can't have it. And the prayer is, if you give me this thing that you want the most, I'll give it back. I don't know about you, church, but when I think about the thing that I want the most in life, do, do I have the faith to then say, God, if you give it to me, I'm going to give it back to you? That's an incredible prayer. And so Eli's watching her say this prayer, but she's doing it silently. And so here she is, tears running down her face. She's in pain, in distraught. And, and Eli looks at her and goes, Oi, how long are you going to be drunk? Stop drinking. And it seems, it seems strange to me at first, at first glance. Why is the high priest, someone who's meant to be someone who understands what you're going through, someone who's meant to be part of your life when, you know, life does go bad, why does the first thing that he think is this woman can't be in the temple to be praying, this, tem- this, this woman must be here and must be drunk? It doesn't quite make sense. Commentators suggest that it's because, and we've learnt, that his sons were wicked in the sight of the Lord. This is the behaviour that they have probably put forward again and again and again. And so when he sees someone else exhibiting this behaviour, he automatically assumes, or it must be exactly what my sons are doing. And so he just assumes that she's drunk. And it's a lesson for us, again, I think, that when we see someone in need, someone in trouble, instead of assuming and judging what's wrong with them first, maybe we should have a conversation with them, find out where they're at. She replies, well, I'm not drunk. I I haven't drunk anything. So don't think of me as a wicked woman. But, and this is a line, oh, we'll go back. That I've, that, don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. They're big words. Anguish and resentment. When we are in the depth of our anguish and resentment, do we lean into God or do we pull away? Do we lean into God or do we pull away? Do we pray to God from the depth of our anguish or resentment? And when you think about it, she has every right in the world to be resentful. She has the right to be resentful 
at Elkanah. Why did he have to marry Penaniah? Why did he have to marry that woman? He could have chosen any woman out of all of Israel and surely there must have been one that would have been nicer to me, that would have treated me nicer, that would have understood my problems. Why did he have to choose the one that constantly throws it in my face? She'd be resentful at Penaniah. Why can she not just give me a break and let me be in peace? And I think, and understandably, she's probably resentful at God. Throughout this text, if we go back a a few verses, it says, uh, where is it? This one, verse 6. Her rival would taunt her severely just uh, just to provoke her because the Lord had kept Hannah from conceiving. There's a few different ideas about this. But in the ancient understanding, everything in your life, and especially in the nations surrounding Israel, was about pleasing the gods. If you didn't please the gods enough, then bad things would happen to you. And so if bad things were happening to you, you hadn't pleased them enough. And that's why you see these barbaric ways of sacrifice, of all manner of different things that the religions around Israel would expect people to do, sacrificing their firstborn. Because it was all about trying to gain favour with the gods. And if I did this, then I might just gain enough favour that I'll gain a blessing from them. And if good things were happening to you, then the gods were blessing you. And so for even the Israel thought of mind was that if you, if good things were happening to you, then God was blessing you. And if bad things were happening to you, then God was punishing you. And so when we read a lot of the Old Testament, we see this idea over and over again that God caused these bad things to happen. But for the ancient understanding, there was no no, nothing else to cause this, these negative, bad things to happen to a person. And so Hannah believes with all her heart that God has kept her from conceiving, that God is punishing her, that God is withholding on his blessings because she hasn't done enough to gain favour. And so she's on her knees praying from the depth of her anguish and resentment. Why, God, can you not just give me one son, one child? Why? Eli responds, and you can imagine he's just assumed that she's a drunk woman that's just sitting there gone a bit crazy. And now she says this, you know, I am praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. You can feel, you can would understand that he probably feels quite guilty right now. But he responds with this beautiful promise. Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. May your servant find favour with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. What faith Hannah has. To straight away, she's there crying in the depth of her anguish and resentment. And this sentence is said, Go in peace and may the God of Israel grant the request you've made of him. And she goes. And she's no longer despondent. 
She eats and she goes on living her life knowing that God is going to grant her request. I don't know about you, but again, think of this one thing that you want more than anything else in your life and someone comes to you and goes, may God grant the request. I don't know if I have the faith to then turn around and go, yep, thank you, I'm all good and carry on. That is an incredible amount of faith just to take that step forward and continue on. And has she left her anguish and resentment? Who knows, but it sounds like it. She's probably still resentful because it hasn't been fixed yet. But when you turn the page and continue reading the story, Samuel's born. And then as you continue to read the story, she has several more sons and several daughters. And so no longer is she this this woman who can't have children. And so in the society of the day, you no longer you're a burden on society. But she goes to being a mother of a big family, a vibrant family. And when I look at this story, Hannah is the underdog. She's the one that shouldn't have succeeded. Penaniah was the one that should have succeeded. But through Hannah and from the depth of her anguish and resentment, we see in the story in the life of Samuel that he goes on to be one of the greatest prophets, the greatest priests that the nation sees, and he guides the nation of Israel all the way through until the time of King David. Through Samuel the nation of Israel is blessed immensely over and over and over again because of a woman named Hannah praying from the depth of her anguish and resentment. She's angry at the world. She's hurting. And yet God uses her. Let's bring it into today's um into our lives and apply it. There's this verse that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, and it says this, But he said to me, and a bit of context, Paul has had a vision, and this vision from God is that he's got these thorns in his side, and they're keeping him from going out and doing more. And Paul is begging God Please take these thorns out of my side so I can do more for you. And this is the response that God gives to him. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. The words of Jesus, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I don't think Hannah took pleasure in the in the weakness of or you know what was a weakness for them in their day and age of not being able to have kids. I don't think she took pleasure in the insults and the hardships, the difficulties. But it was through her weakness 
and through the insults and through the hardships and the difficult times that God was able to show just how strong he is because he took a woman who was barren and unable to have kids and gave her a big family and a child that went on to bless Israel in a massive way. When we look at our lives and we look at the tough times we go through, do we take pleasure in the insults, in the hardships, in the persecutions, in our weaknesses? When we look at the world around us, especially the world of sports, if you have a weakness, that's what you need to work on. If you're a basketball player and you don't have a great jump shot, the coach will tell you, I'm benching you, go away, work on your jump shot, come back when you've got it working again. If you're not good enough, you don't last. This is flipping the script. And it doesn't mean that we need to be proud of our weaknesses. It doesn't mean that we should take and not try to improve ourselves. But when God works through us in ways that we don't think should be possible, the people around us will look at us and go, that's not possible. How are they doing that? When we as a church community get together, we have strengths and weaknesses. And often there are things that happen in our lives and in our church communities that we have to say, the glory goes to you, God, that wasn't me. And so the challenge and the the application for us today is how do we say, God, your grace is sufficient for me, for your power is perfected in my weakness. How do we hand over? That's the challenge. Because for Hannah, her weakness was her childless, childlessness. And what did she do? She leaned into God. She got on her knees and in the depth of her anguish and resentment, angry at the world because of her weakness, she prayed to God. What do we, what do we do at the depth of our anguish and resentment? Do we say, God, your grace is sufficient for me. Your power is enough. And so the challenge I want to leave for all of us today is will we lay down our weaknesses at the feet of Jesus Christ and allow him to use us to show the community just how strong he is? Will we allow Jesus to let his grace wash over us and say and stand, God, your grace is sufficient for me and that's enough. And that's enough. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the story of Hannah. A story of pain, a story of hurt, a story of grief, and a story of joy at the other side. God, I pray that each of us are able to take our weaknesses, are able to take the things in our lives and give them to you and say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need your help. Your grace is sufficient. Wash me with your grace. You do it so often for so many characters, Lord. You did it for Hannah. 
In the depth of her anguish and resentment, you said, my grace is sufficient for you. And through her weakness, everyone saw how strong you are. And I pray, Lord, that for each of us, through our weaknesses, everyone is able to see how strong you are. Lord, I thank you for your grace, the grace that is sufficient for us. And I thank you for your demonstration of your grace for us when you died on the cross so that we can one day be with you for eternity. And I pray, Lord, that each of us take that act of love, of mercy, of grace, and we accept it and we embrace it and it changes us and it forces us to go out and tell others. I pray that our actions become yours so that we can become the the light on the hill, the salt of the earth, for you, so that when people look at us, they go, wow, there's something different. And it's because of you, Jesus. It's because of your strength and your grace. Lord, thank you for the time that we've had together. And I just pray that through your Holy Spirit, each of us have had our hearts and minds impacted. Until we meet again, Lord, we leave all of these things in your hands. And until we see you coming on the clouds of glory, which we cannot wait for, Lord, we just leave it with you. In your precious name I pray. Amen.